This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project, an inner spiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. So welcome to the SCP podcast. I'm today's host, Sita Ram Das, and I'm here with Ramdev Dale Borglum, uh, who I think for our core audience, probably you don't really need much of an introduction. I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are very familiar with your work. Um, and in fact, some of our core group, the people that are very involved, are either actively going through some of your trainings or who have in the past. That said, for those who may not know, uh, you're the director of the Living Dying Project. Uh, you were the uh, founder of the Hanuman Foundation Dying Center, which was the first uh, conscious dying center in the United States, uh, co-author of Journey of Awakening. And you also, your wisdom is shared on a regular basis on the Healing at the Edge podcast through the Be Here Now Network. And the other real main thing with all of that is that you really are one of the founders of the conscious death and dying movement in the United States. Uh, is there anything there I missed? Uh, yeah, that's good what you said. I mean, you could talk about my love life, but probably don't want to do that. I don't know. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and Ramdev is also a human and, and has a, a love life, which we probably won't get into. Um, but since you have been at the forefront of the conscious dying movement, I'd love just to start with you just clearly defining some terms. Like what does conscious dying mean? And what does conscious living mean? How are those different or the same? Well, they're the same in the sense that when you're conscious, whether you're living or whether you're dying, you're conscious. And uh, everybody's dying. Uh, maybe sooner rather than later, maybe later rather than sooner. We don't really know, of course. Uh, I work with people often who have life-threatening illnesses, so they're feeling that their lifespan is highly probably severely limited and they're not going to be in their bodies much longer, which gives them a lot of motivation for becoming more conscious. So that uh, conscious dying is just conscious living in the context of you're dying, right? But what is conscious living? And that that's the complicated question because there's different levels of being conscious. Uh, at the simplest level, being conscious means you're present, you're, you're mindful. Uh, you're not lost in your mind, you're there in your body, you're paying attention to what's going on, as opposed to somebody who's living in a dream, right? And if we think about Vipassana meditation or mindfulness, that's a, that's a practice, that's a path to become more conscious and present. And in fact, it's a complete path. One can go through mindfulness into a full realization of one's inherent wholeness and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that for a lot of Westerners, there tends to be a lack of embodiment and that attempts to become mindful or to meditate are often even attempts to escape the way that emotions are locked in the body. And I really uh, emphasize getting grounded, getting centered, working with the lower chakras. Uh, I was talking with Mirabai Starr, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, who lived at Lama when she was a teenager and knew Ramdas then, and she remembered, and she even found a recording where Ramdas was teaching, and he said, let's start at the fourth chakra because the lower chakras are too dangerous, right? But that was an attitude that he greatly changed as time went on, and the first three chakras are more about becoming a human. It's not open-hearted, let's merge with God stuff, but it's working with fear and guilt and shame and anxiety and things like that. So at one level, conscious living is be here now, 
Okay, be here now and then eventually be here now with an open heart. Uh, but at another level, uh, being conscious is being fully awake. And toward the end of Ram Dass's life, for instance, he talked about, I am loving awareness. Uh, that he was identifying not with this guy who's being aware, but awareness itself. So that's, that's, a, that's a deeper level of what conscious is. And that's an important distinction because when we die, we actually die into that realization that we are consciousness. And to the extent that we've had some practice in being with that before we die, it's not such a shock. The Tibetans say that when you die, there is a light that is bright as a thousand suns. That's a pretty darn bright light, right? So you want to put on your sunglasses, hey, thousand suns, right? Whereas if you've had uh, experience in your life of feeling so much love or so much openness uh, that you have surrendered into this wholeness for periods of time. Uh, very few people live there. Maharaji lived there. Great saints have lived there. Uh, whether I'm living there or going to live there, whether Ram Das got there before he died, who knows? But uh, he certainly was on that path of exploring and cultivating the deep realization that we are consciousness. It's not like I am conscious, but it's uh, like Ramana, Ramana Maharshi, you may know, he became enlightened when he was 15 or 16 or something. And he ended up saying, I am Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, bliss. He was not a guy who was experiencing consciousness. He was consciousness. So uh, when we're talking about conscious dying, that, that deeper or more advanced, or the, the words kind of are a little confusing almost, is important because of what, what death is about. Death, from, to me, is dropping the physical body, but consciousness remains. Yeah. And so that you and I and everybody are twofold beings. There's this human being that's going through this human drama where people are, are falling in love and dying and getting sick and voting Republican, uh, act, uh, being uh, an activist for climate change and things like that. And it's contextualized in the vast spaciousness of consciousness. Yeah. Most people are fixated on that first dimension. That yeah. which changes, that which dies. Every moment, what we're experiencing is changing. What is it that doesn't change? And what is it that doesn't change wasn't born and isn't going to die. So to the extent we're resting in that, I mean, we kind of made a joke before we went on the air. I made a joke. You were saying, how is that being bothered by the all the rainstorms here in Northern California? And I gave that payment children quote that... Uh, be the sky and not the weather, right? Yeah. So the sky is infinitely boundless. The heart is is boundless and spacious enough to bear the suffering of all sentient beings. But we tend to put a window frame around the hunk of sky that we think is me, right? So if a big enough cloud comes into the me sky, a cloud of anger or a cloud of happiness doesn't have to be a bad cloud, and the window frame is small enough, the cloud is big enough, all you see is the cloud. And you say, I am angry or I am afraid. Whereas if you expand the window frame, that same size cloud can come, but now it's contextualized in yeah. the background of blue sky and it's moving. It's going to be gone at some point. But like in English, we say, I am afraid. In Spanish, mm -hmm. it's, it goes, yo tengo miedo, I have fear. In Tibetan, they say, fear is here. Uh-huh. So just in the way we think and language things in, in English, it's harder not to close the window, contract the window frame and, and identify with these passing mind-body states. Yeah. So when, when you think about Maharaji, he was doing all these, quote, miracles, unquote, of being in two places at the same time and knowing the past and knowing the future. And to me, it wasn't a miracle. It was the fact that he wasn't, there wasn't a him who was identified in being Nim Crowley Baba in Brindaban in 1963 or whatever it was. You know, it was like he was all time and all space. Yeah. So 
it was not a miracle. It's just a different level of consciousness. Yeah. And there's a lot of directions we could go uh, with what you just shared. That was really rich. Um, but since you brought up Maharaji, uh, one thing I'm curious is the, the time that you spent with him and then all the work you've done since and all the trainings and all the ways that you, you've really uh, learned on, on your own path of wisdom of, of working with dying. How has how that encounter with him shaped the work that you're doing right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I just, I don't, I, I'd have to, well, let me see what comes up here. I mean, in one way, there, I, I've had two lives. The uh, life I had before I met Maharaj, and then there was that moment I met him, and my life shifted dramatically. But as well as shifting dramatically, it shifted very gradually. That boom. In fact, in India, they say the work of the guru takes place in one second, but then you've got to bring it into manifestation through life and practice and whatever. So, so I mean, I run the Living Dying Project. I'm the executive director, but I feel like I just work here. It's Maharaji's uh-huh. Living Project. I think it's actually Hanuman's Living Dying Project, right? Uh, this used to be called the Hanuman Foundation Dying Project, and then... Uh, when I took it over from Stephen, I added the word living, and then Ramdas thought it would be better if Stephen, he, and I all had our separate corporate structures. Uh, so now it's not Hanuman Foundation, but it still is Hanuman's. And uh-huh. fact, one time when I was running this, Hanuman showed up in my bedroom, literally, right? And uh, there was Hanuman, two-thirds of the size of a adult human being made out of red light. Okay. Whoa, you know, so uh, the Living Dying Project has been a relatively small organization. We've gone through various incarnations. At one point, we were a lot bigger. Now we're getting bigger again. We have this very engaged board of directors. And all through this, whether there's a lot of money or very little money, I just I have a feeling like it's Hanuman's living dying project. So Mm. he's got to make the money show up. I I can't worry about that too much. Uh And I mean, actually the stuff, I'll tell you the story about Hanuman being in my bedroom. Yeah. please. I I was running the dying center in Santa Fe and it was a really piss poor business model, which was, well, you can come and live with us. You're dying. We'll take care of you free of charge. You don't pay any rent. You don't buy your own food. You just have enough, money for your own long distance telephone bill, which you're not old enough to know that used to be a thing, probably. I, 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 I'm, I'm old enough to know that used to be a thing, but that's still a vague memory for me. Okay. Long <laughs> bill, buy your own medications and leave the house at the end, head first or feet first. That's all you got to have the money to do, right? So one year I had to teach 33 workshops to support the place. I was like traveling a lot to... Uh, pay the rent and the you know the staff and everything, and I came back to Santa Fe. I was really exhausted. I'd been on some long lecture tour thing, and I was taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon, which I rarely did. I had a lot of energy, but I was just. And I woke up. I was really groggy. I was in my bedroom. I woke up and something felt really weird, and I looked over. Really, not weird, but strange. Something was just so different. And I looked over where I meditate. I had a Zafu on the floor over the side of the room. And sitting on the Zafu was Hanuman. I swear to God, I was not asleep. I was I was awake. But I was in that very pure place. Of, I've just awakened. I was barely into ego structure at all. Uh-huh. Hanuman was there. As I say, he was made out of red light. And he had on a, a, a green lungoti, like a loincloth, covering his genitals. And I looked at him. And he cocked his head and he gave me this look that was a combination of the sweetest, kindest, most intimate love combined with all the power and strength in the whole universe Mm. at the same time. Right. And I said, oh, hi, Hanuman. And he just smiled at me. And I looked at him for a while and I went back to sleep. I said, there's Hanuman. Right. And later in the day, I went over to Ramdas. So we had some business thing to talk about. I don't know what it was. Can't remember. 
I said, oh, by the way, Hanuman's in my bedroom this afternoon. He, said, he, got all, he got way more excited about it than I did. He said, oh, Ramdev, you're so lucky, right? But the reason I'm bringing up the story now is because in that bedroom was my desk. And on that de desk were bills that we didn't have the money to pay. Phone bill, I don't know, bills. And I figured, well, if Hanuman's in the bedroom, he knows, he knows the bills that are on my desk. The next day, an unsolicited $5,000 check showed up in the mail from some female physician who had attended a workshop I had taught in Phoenix like a month before. I had no idea she was only even going to make a donation at all. $5,000 just showed up out of, the, out of the clear blue. So wow. it's, it's so that since I met Maharaji, I feel like I'm a sandwich. I'm a Ramdev sandwich. <laughs> And I'll explain what that means. Okay. So there's bread in the top, bread in the bottom, and meat in the middle, right? Or maybe you're a vegetarian. Maybe it's only cheese in the middle. Or maybe you're a vegan and it's like sprouts or something that I wouldn't want to eat in the first place. Anyway, there's a sandwich. And the bottom layer is uh, I have complete faith in Maharaji. I have complete, this is unshakable. And the top layer is, for my personality, I can talk about it, I can be very articulate about it. But in the middle, there's this neurotic place where I get nervous about things, I get horny, I get restless, I get, you know, whatever, the things people do, right? And, uh, but as the older I get, the less I care about that middle. Mm. I mean, Ramdas had this line, I'm not sure I completely believe it, but it's, provocative if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch <laughs> i think i think it's hard to be enlightened son of a bitch because enlightenment really in some ways implies compassion yeah and there's one thing that maharaji was it was compassion i mean he would get angry and he would get this and that he would cry and he would be full of bliss and all those things but he whatever he did you could feel that it was generated by compassion for all beings and he even said i could have been a very great saint but i i, I was too compassionate mm -hmm. <laughs> which is kind of funny if you think about it yeah i what i like about that analogy you just gave of the sandwich is something i've thought of a lot is that so this bottom layer of this faith um so i know that this is real and it's it's always present and one of the things about um the workings of my mind is that I just, I'm naturally critical of everything and I can doubt, I mean, I can doubt anything. I mean, I've had psychedelic trips where I doubted my entire reality. I mean, you know, it just, just whatever it is about my mind, it's just very much like that. And something that I've been really exploring is the fact that, uh, that these doubting thoughts can happen and the faith can like, they can coexist. I mean, it's like two different places. Um, so I, I appreciate that analogy uh, in terms of, yeah, just seeing these different elements of our, of our being and how we relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that, since you brought up Ramdas a couple of times, one thing that I appreciate about you uh, in particular is uh, I've heard you in conversations with Raghu and other people uh, on the podcast and whatnot. Um, you're very willing to openly disagree with Ramdas about things, um, which, you know, I don't hear a lot of other people, or if they do it, they, they do it with a different set of reverence. And I've always gotten a sense of respect from you, but also the way you do it, it's very clear that you're really good friends. Like you've known each other for a long time. Um, and that's something I really appreciate. And something I've been reflecting on is that even Ramdas's teachings, right? He, he changed his mind about many things throughout his life. And since I've been on the path uh, over these last 15 years, uh, I've changed my mind about things. And so it just makes sense to me that even Ramdas's teachings, uh, even towards the end of his life, um, I mean, yeah, I, his teachings, I mean, really largely, I, I've lived my life by them. I mean, there's a reason I sought him out and that it, it's okay to even uh, inspect those and be critical of those because I don't know if if, if Ramdas kept living in that body for a few more generations, maybe in a hundred years, you know that same incarnation would would change his opinion. 
Um, and so I, that's something I've appreciated. And why I'm bringing this up is something I'm really curious about from you is thinking about this time period when all this started, right? In the 60s and 70s, when this consciousness came in, what do you see? Because I know you're working with like a lot of younger people now, right? People seek you out and you do a lot of changes, uh, trainings with younger people that want to be on the path, want to uh, be involved in compassionate caregiving, conscious living. What's different about the culture today, uh, for better, for worse? Is Are there some lessons that had to be learned over the previous generation that feel like they're just more stabilized in the culture now? And are there some things that you feel like have been lost um, in terms of values? Or are, are there things that are easier or harder? Or is it just the same in terms of being on the path today versus a generation ago? That's a great question. So let me go back to that thing about well, me disagreeing with Ramdas. I mean, Let's take it to another level. Maharaji himself was not consistent. He would say something to somebody, and he'd say the opposite to somebody else. Or he'd say something to somebody, and a week later he'd say the opposite to that same person. Yeah. Because the situation changed. So then people write down in the journal, Maharaji said such and such. And then other people say, oh, that's the gospel truth. This means this is a generalizable truth, when in fact there was a specific message for a specific person at a specific time. Yeah. Right? And it's the same with Ramdas. I mean, he, uh, he was incredibly wise and articulate. I mean, he really had a great, great gift to explain the, the, the nuances and complexities of the Dharma a complete beginner, yeah. better than anybody I've ever met. Uh, at the same time, in my humble opinion, he was a little bit caught in being Ramdas. And that stroke is the thing, was the greatest gift that ever happened to him in terms of his spiritual evolution. I mean, think about it. His gift was speaking. And what happened? He couldn't hardly talk. <laughs> it's yeah. like, think about being in that body. It was like 22 years or something that he was lived after the stroke, I forget. But so uh, uh, it's not like I'm saying Ramdas was wrong. It's just right. that uh, things change, as you were pointing out. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, times were very, very different back back in the day. I'm sounding like an old man here. I am an old man. I'm eight years old, believe it or not. But uh you know, when we started taking acid back in the late 60s, there was a very different feeling than there is now. The feeling was, we're going to change the world. Everybody, If we could just put acid in the, in the water supply, there would be world peace. There was like uh -huh. incredible optimism. And it, it, was, it was a naivete, certainly. And the Vietnam War happened, and Ronald Reagan happened, and all that. And now we're living with Donald Trump in the aftermath. So, uh, so in some ways, it was, I think, a lot more exciting back in those days. Maybe I'm not as excited now because I'm older and I've had all this experience. But it was, in some ways, it was very difficult back then because there were very few books or teachers. I was doing intense Hatha yoga. I was like swallowing cloths and... Uh, being a fruitarian for long periods of time and standing on my head for, you know, half the afternoon and, you know, doing all that stuff. And I was using texts that were very poorly translated and contradictory. Uh -huh. Now you go to the bookstore, you go to Amazon, and the wisdom of the ages is in paperback form, you know, and, and remarkable teachers who are very sophisticated psychologically, like, Sokni Rinpoche or uh, the Dalai Lama, and, uh, are bringing the Dharma to the West. At the same time, back in the 20th century, there was Maharaji and Anandamai and Ramana Maharshi. I don't feel like those beings have been replaced. Mm -hmm. I feel like, like the Dharma or like the spirit is becoming democratized. Yeah. So that Maharaji split into a thousand pieces or something like that. I've got one piece, you've got one piece, Ramdas had one piece, 
some pieces were maybe bigger or smaller, who knows. But to be, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound presumptuous, but there's nobody I want to drive over a bridge to see and sit at their feet right now. Uh-huh. I don't want to go to, to take all the trouble of going over the Golden Gate Bridge and paying 30 bucks and being at the feet of Lama so-and-so because I don't need any more knowledge. I know it. I'm not saying I am it, I'm, but sure. uh, I I need to integrate this knowledge and make it wisdom and make it uh, in know it's in the cells of my body so that I can be compassionate on a, on a daily basis. So that th- there was a lot of excitement, but naivete and a confusion all mixed together. But I mean, you know, I got to be in a room with the Dalai Lama with, with two friends. There's two, me and two other friends and the Dalai Lama and a translator. Or Ramdas and I are driving down the Skyline Boulevard in San Mateo County eating opium with our friend Joel. Or, you know, it's like a lot more intimate. It's like really intense. I got to be drinking buddies with Ramdas when I was in college, right? And then by the time you got to him, there was like a whole scene there you have to like fight your way i mean not not particular you know what i'm saying that it was so it it was it's very different in that way and at the same time the culture now or society global society it's much more global than it used to be it's i think there's a lot less romanticism about asia and and asian teachers than there was back in those days uh and uh, there's a lot more concern about the environment and about yeah. we were all mad about Vietnam and I was being chased down the street by police shooting tear gas and that. But it's very different now. I mean, it's it's like the survival of the planet's at stake. Yeah. Right? So uh, I, there's a lot fewer people wanting to go off and do super long meditation retreats and be kind of like yogis or monks or something like that. It's like it's crucial to have teachings but bring them into the world yeah uh, which i think is a wonderful thing uh it's it's almost like the spiritual scene was an infant and now it's kind of an adolescent it's not quite an adult yet there's mm. still, there's still some thrashing around so i mean here's the thing the buddha said i think it's so interesting he said in the 500 years after he died a lot of people get enlightened following his teachings. And the 500 years after that, a lot, but fewer. And the 500 years after that, fewer still, until after 10 of these cycles, 5,000 years, the notions of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha would be lost from the planet and the Maitreya Buddha, the next Buddha would show up. That is like this continuous slide into less Dharma. But in the very middle of this 5,000 year period, there's a hundred-year chunk that started in the 1950s in which the Dharma would become really available and then it would close down again. So if you think early 1950s, 1940s, there's some people practicing the Dharma in Kyoto or in the Amazon or in Jerusalem, the Sinai Desert, or, you know, very few people, right? And now, as I've said before, you can go to Amazon and get the wisdom of the ages at your doorstep in a day or two. And it's not too hard to extrapolate to like 35 years from now. We're going to be so busy trying to get clean air to breathe or clean water to drink or deal with the Chinese dictatorship or who knows what, that not a lot of people have the luxury of doing, hanging out like you and I are doing right now. We're trying to get our children fed. We're trying to not starve to death. We're trying to, you know, whatever. I don't know what it would be, but it's, there's plenty of ways that could happen. Yeah. where practicing the Dharma would be uh, a luxury for only the few. So now is the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And that's, that's one of the things I've reflected on is that like right now, and I think a lot of it is because of the work that was done uh, really in your generation is that what I see is there's much less of a view of separation in terms of spirituality and systemic issues and politics and this idea of integration, you know, is much more. And at the same time, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I think more of us, there's like, 
like more addictions now with like phone and social media and it's it's harder economically. And so I don't know if it's better or worse or easier or harder, but it, it's different, right? This is, it's it's a different moment in some sense. Yeah. It's easier and harder. I mean, in some ways, the harder it is, then it takes people who are more committed, right? Mm. And I mean, to me, it all boils down to motivation. How alive do you want to be? How 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 conscious do you want to be? I mean, I love Netflix. I love a glass of wine. I love, you know, taking a moment off here and there. And uh, I'm crazy for for anything but the Dharma. I you know I want uh, I want freedom. That's all yeah. I want. But I've got a body. I you know I'm pretty healthy. And all of these things are mixed together in a way that's kind of complicated. You know, I keep seeing those two banjos behind you there. Uh-huh. And one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons, maybe you've seen this, and I hope you're not offended, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay. There's this New Yorker cartoon where the devil is accompanying this maestro, this concert conductor, and he's showing him a room. He's saying, this is your new orchestra and everybody's playing banjos. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. I I think that uh I don't know if I'm offended, but I'll say this. My my partner Jamie, who she's the one that uh you know, most people just get to hear me play after I've been practicing and I'm doing an event or whatever. She's the one that gets to hear me practice. And uh I, I'm someone that what keeps me with my chanting practice uh is it's easier to engage if I have a little bit of novelty. And so I'll also I'll often bring in different instruments to learn and things. And that's helpful for me. So I'm constantly learning new instruments and I like that. And so, um, so she's the one that gets to hear me do things like be a beginner at the banjo. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure, I'm sure she'd get a good laugh from that. I did the whole, the whole, the whole orchestra is banjos. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty really good. It's a beautiful instrument. I'm certainly not suggesting that it's not. Yeah, no, it really is. And it's um, it's twangy. It has an abrasive quality, which is a part of it. And um, uh, if you're really skilled, it's beautiful. And if you're not, it's, it's maybe not as bad as like a beginner on the violin, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as forgiving as some other instruments. Um, well, this is a lot of rich stuff. Um, and I imagine we could probably wrap up soon, but uh, a couple other questions and just one little comment, you know, just especially around this, uh, you know, bringing up Ramdas and the shift in his consciousness that happened, you know, with the stroke. And one of my favorite stories to tell about him, and I'll share this with you in short. You know, when I sought him out, like most people, it's because his teachings, uh, when I sought him out, this was before the podcasts and all that. And so it was really books and then whatever YouTube videos were out. And I was just, it, it was someone that was just speaking. It felt like he was speaking directly to me, right? And, and so I sought him out. I wanted to meet him. I didn't know why. And when I met him, he was very, it was a very different place, right? He, he had his stroke and he was very slow. And, but intuitively, I knew that there was something else going on that I didn't even know I was looking for. I just, I felt that presence. And so I got the chance to live with him and and I got to have a different type of relationship with him than just the teachings, right? I mean, it was really just his presence um, that I found so inspiring and infectious. And well, so one of my stories, and I think you'll get a kick out of this, is uh, we were in the hot tub. It was Ramdas Dasima and I. And she would always have her iPod playing music, Krishadas, Jayutal, whatever. And every once in a while, Ramdas talks would come on and she was supposed to skip them because Ramdas didn't want to hear himself speak. But for whatever reason, on this particular day, she didn't hit skip and he didn't say anything and I didn't say anything. And so we're, the three of us are in this hot tub and it's silence. And we're just listening to this old Ramdas talk from the early 70s and maybe 10, 15 minutes goes by, silence. And then Ramdas breaks the silence and he says, that guy, he talks too much. <laughs> it was just this, it was just the purest laughter that we all had. It was such a beautiful moment. Well, let me tell you a brief Ramdas hot tub story. So 
when we had the Hanuman Foundation, the board of directors was me, Ramdas, Stephen Levine, and Vajra, Richard Johnson. We were all living in Santa Cruz at, at one time, another time we were living in Santa Fe. But for the time being, we were in, in Santa Cruz. And Ramdas would, would arrange it so that we had our board meetings so we could be in the hot tub. And he turned it up to like 108 degrees. And everybody else, the other three of us couldn't really bear it, you know, and so, so, for somehow physiologically, he didn't mind the heat and everybody else was getting kind of crazy. Their brains were heating up. They would, would agree with anything he wanted just so we could get the meeting done and get out of the hot tub. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's perfect because, so uh, those of us that were caregivers for Ramnas, we all have this very special bond and we're all still very much in contact. And one of our favorite activities coming together and just sharing these stories. And uh, one of those ones is those stories, like that never changed for him. His ability to be in the heat, right? It's a hot Maui day and in the hot tub and you're in there with him and it's great. And then time goes by and, hey, Ramdas, you want to go? No, I'm good. And then just, you know, just, just like cooking. Just everyone else is just cooking and, and Ramdas was fine. You know, he, so. But, but my story, he uses that as advantage to get what he wants. Like. Yeah, uh, I love that. Okay. One other story. I'm, Please. You know, I'm the phone here, I'm going to have a conversation with Peter Kelsey. Uh-huh. Yeah. Love him. And when, when Dasima had to go get her knees replaced, he was one of the two guys that took over for her for those few weeks, whatever it was. And he told me the story that he was in the swimming pool with, with Ramdas. And Ramdas had his vest on. And one of the caregivers, maybe it's even you, I don't know, but somebody was there. And the caregiver had to go inside to do something for a few minutes. And Ramdas said, take the vest off. I want to sink. And Peter said, I, I don't know. I, he said, no, no, I always had this vest on. I was up in the surface. I want to go down to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> so Peter took his vest off and Rama sank to the bottom of the pool. And he stayed there. And Peter thinks, oh, my God, I've killed him. Right? <laughs> and then, and then Rama bobbed back up again. And they put the vest back on before the caregiver showed up. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I was not. Uh, well, I guess I don't know. Maybe maybe they could have all kept that a secret for me, but hmm, I don't think I was there for that. Well, um, the only person that knew about it was Peter. Yeah. And he didn't want to get in trouble for having taken the vest off, so I don't think he told anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's another fun one is all the ways, uh, all of the Ramdas risk-taking stories, uh, that's one of those, I mean, a lot of things change over the course of his life, but that's one of those ones that, doesn't seem like it ever changed. Uh, and yeah, there, there's a lot of fun stories around that towards the end of his life too. Yeah. Well, before we transition to you talking a little bit more about the Living Dying Project and the things you're doing, is there anything else that's come up for you in the course of this conversation that you feel inspired to share right now? Well, there's this one Maharaji story that keeps jumping in my head. Mm. Uh, it's such a delight to talk to you. I mean, I, I am a connoisseur of being interviewed by various people, and you're a great interviewer. It's, you just draw in a very easy way. Sometimes it doesn't work like that. Uh, but anyway, one time I was with Maharaji, and there was a guy named Mohan, maybe you know Mohan. Uh -huh. Mohan and I were with Maharaji, and there was a bunch of Westerners there, and for some reason there was no other... I mean, there was a bunch of Indians there. So it was Mohan and me and Maharaj and a bunch of Indians. And he's talking to the Indians uh, in Hindi or the local dialect. I'm not sure which it was at that time. But then he turned, he turned to us and said, how much do you pay for milk in America? And Mohan made a quick calculation in his head and said, uh, so many rupees per kilo, Maharaj, which is the way they buy milk in India. Maharaji got all excited and he turned to the Indians and he started going on and on about the price of milk in, in uh, America. There's a translator kind of telling us some of this. I had just gotten there. I mean, this is right in the beginning of when we could first see Maharaji. There are so few of us that we would go to the temple and uh, 
Ramdas's T.W. bus. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I just got my PhD from Stanford in math. And here's this guy, we're talking about the price of milk. Maybe Ramdas is mistaken. Maybe he doesn't really know where he actually is, right? So he's going on and on and on about the price of milk. And I want to talk about God. I want to talk about, I, I want to get enlightened. I don't care about the price of milk, right? I've come all the way from California to India. It's 12 time zones away. It's the other side of the world. So he turns back to Moan. He says, how much was it again? Moan called it. Then for another five or 10 minutes, it's going on and on. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And all of a sudden, I had this explosion in my head that I knew came from him. I don't know how I can, how I can, how I knew that, but he gave me this message. And the message was, "Look, we can talk about important stuff. Mm. That just makes the mind busy. We're talking about this bullshit thing of the price of milk. It allows us to rest in the ocean of bliss." Uh-huh. I went into this bliss state that I was in for the rest of the day. I could barely talk, and. Maharaji had just shown me that what's going on out there isn't important. It's that at every moment, whether I'm talking to Sita Ramdas or whether I'm my PayPal got hacked today, somebody tried to buy an iPhone with my PayPal or what's oh going my gosh. on. And you know, either one of those things, I can still be in this ocean of bliss. Uh-huh. <laughs> or I could say, oh my God, my PayPal got hacked, or oh, isn't Sita Ramdas such a great guy or whatever, right? But underneath it all, there's this 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 ocean of of bliss, this the pure consciousness we can just rest in. Mm. Yeah, I could imagine that that left you with. I mean, when you're working with people uh, in this conscious way, I imagine that uh, sometimes it looks like just maybe making small talk or attending to someone's basic pain needs, or, I mean, I, I imagine, I could imagine there's a lot of ways that, that that wisdom has played out in the way you work with people even. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really a great point. And I have these workshops, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. People can pay money, and I teach you techniques and attitudes and things. But the deepest healing, true spiritual healing, is at another level. It's the way Maharaji did things. It's not that I'm at that level necessarily but instead of focusing on suppose i mean just uh yesterday somebody i don't know in 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 the last 24 hours i've got three or four emails somebody's son died somebody's mother died somebody's got cancer and they want my help they want support so do i focus on the place where that person is grieving or that person has cancer and try to help them heal that place? Or do I focus on this person who feels like they're broken and they need help? Or do I see them in wholeness and just hang out with them there? Mm. So when, when, when I was younger and I was living here in the Bay Area and a lot of these yogis and lamas and swamis kept coming through town, I had my test question. And the test question was, if I have a friend who's dying and they've never meditated, what's the best thing I can do for them? And the, the, the best answer I got, most of the people had the same answer, some people wandered off, was go be in the one mind and then be with your friend. Mm. Right? Rest yourself in wholeness and in that wholeness be with your friends so that you're not seeing their brokenness. You're not fixing, you're not fixating on the broken part. Right. And that's what Maharaji did. I mean, mm. I'm sitting right in front of him as uh, close to him as I am to my computer screen right now. And maybe I'd be feeling inadequate or maybe I was uh, attracted to the woman next to me or maybe whatever was going on. And he just kept seeing the place in me that was whole. And that's what that was what was transformative. Not all these miracles that he did. I mean, that's why Ramdas called the book "Miracle of Love." That was the true miracle. Yeah. Not all these crazy stories about the unusual paranormal things he could do. Yeah. But that he he was he he saw that I was love and that he was love, and he hung out there. And I began to I began to. Uh, 
trust what he saw in me, right? So he saw that I was love. And then, then there was a stage where he saw that I was love, but I couldn't figure out how he could see this, this crazy person sitting next to me was love. Uh-huh. <laughs> Other devotee was clearly completely fucked up and neurotic. How could he see this guy as love? <laughs> That's a whole other story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it also, right, because I'm, I don't know anything about uh, a being like Maharaji other than that he's in my being ultimately. But uh, in terms of like what you just provided is something that's workable, right? I, I can work to be in the one mind and I can work to see someone else uh, as, as whole. And the more that I do that, uh, the more that that can be a, a part of the space. Right. And I imagine that's one piece of in your workshops uh, of, of what you teach and, and, and help people towards. Um, so maybe you could, maybe we could end with that. Just you talking a little bit about the offerings that you have and, and how people can, uh, be engaged or support the living dying project. Well, uh, so I'm the director of this nonprofit called the living dying project. Our website is livingdying.org. There's a slash in the name of the organization, but there's no slash in the URL because you can't do that. So it's just all one word, livingdying.org. And we offer, among other things, free of charge, spiritual support to people with life-threatening illnesses and to people who take care of them and to grieving people. So if you or anybody you know wants that kind of support, just call or write. Uh, our phone number and email address is plastered all over every page of the website. Info at livingdying.org is the email. Uh, there's an online workshop that's always available, which is a recording of a workshop I taught a few years ago with a live three-hour follow-up where uh, I go through this whole healing paradigm that we've just briefly alluded to but really haven't gone into any depth at all. Uh, in January and February and March, I'm teaching four weekend workshops, two in person here in the Bay Area and two Zoom on the same stuff, but it's going to be in person or at least Zoom in to our Zoom and to our live, but they're okay. in the sense that they're ha at that moment, if you will. Uh, I, I have a, every other Saturday's Zoom spiritual support group that has 390 some people in it. Although it's very intimate, believe it or not, it's very, it started right at the beginning of COVID. Mm. Uh, so if you wrote to the Living Dying Project and said, I want to be in Ram Dave's Saturday group, we'll just put you on that and you'll get a Zoom invitation every couple of weeks. Uh, I have a podcast on the Beer Now Network that I'm sure you're aware of that has about 85 or 90 episodes now, I guess. And, uh, the stuff we talk about, I go into great depth. There's stuff about grace and about compassion and about Maharaji and interviews with different people. And, uh, and then uh, that's pretty much it. I, I have some small groups that are limited to nine people that meet either weekly or every other week, depending on which one it is. And there's, I think there's one space on the Tuesday afternoon group and one space in the Wednesday night group. And actually, now there's just one space in the Monday night group, too. Somebody just had to drop out. And uh, any minute now, my next podcast on the Duncan Trussell family hour is coming out, maybe even today. Okay. Uh, so that'll generate a lot of activity. He's great, as you know. Sure. And he and I are becoming good buddies. Oh, so cool. uh, there's the living part, there's the dying part. And I... I not only are we working with helping individuals who are sick and dying and grieving and caregiving, but my opinion or my deep feeling is that, that the collective fear of dying is what is underneath all the greed and selfishness and everything that's creating mm -hmm. hunger and homelessness and, and climate change and all those things. That if we really knew we were going to die and that our children were going to die, we take care of ourselves and each other in the planet a lot better so that you can donate to Oxfam or Amnesty International or Habitat for Humanity or on and on and on. 
and you put it, you put a bandaid over here and the blood comes spreading out over there and you run over there and put a bandaid over there and it comes spreading out a third place. Whereas if we can really begin to deal with this basic belief in this delusion of separateness, that mat- that is the manifestation of fear of death, then uh, the whole thing opens up and calms down and, and the root cause of all of the symptoms begins to diminish. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. And so really, I mean, that, that sounds like that's really some of the driving crux behind the, the work that you're doing is just working with that, that illusion of separation and that, that fear of dying. Well, I mean, basically the way this whole thing started, this whole conscious dying movement, was that Ramdas knew Aldous Huxley, who wrote a book called Island back in the 60s, I believe, maybe. Yeah. In this novel, there was like there's a utopian community and they had a place for people to die consciously. And Ramdas thought, what a great idea. And he went around talking about it, but nobody was it, it was way too early in, in the culture for that to to take root. And then Elizabeth Kubler-Ross showed up, and she wasn't interested in conscious dying, but she brought dying out of the closet. She was able to start talking about it. Roundhouse taught a workshop in Rhode Island at which Elizabeth came as a student, and at which Stephen Levine was the Buddhist meditation teacher. So uh, Stephen and Elizabeth hit it off. She invited him to be the meditation teacher at her, her retreats. He started flying on his own dime to where she was teaching, and teaching meditation and with you're just teaching meditation you, you can't just only teach meditation because people are dying people are suffering and Stephen's uh-huh. getting into this work and elizabeth started changing directions she got involved in kind of like uh really aggressive psychodrama beating up phone directories and mattresses screaming i hate you mommy fuck you daddy and things like that sounds like classic 70s which which didn't dovetail too well with Stephen's buddhist meditation so he uh, and Elizabeth amicably parted ways, and Ramos invited him to be part of the Hanuman Foundation. And we felt that that basically, you know, the Dharma had been exploding, and the place in our culture that was most resistant to the Dharma, other than the White House, maybe, was the encounter with life-threatening illness and dying. And that the best way we could use our energy was to promote and bring conscious dying into the into popular culture uh-huh yeah yeah that's beautiful well what i really want to say in this moment and really i, I mean it is just thank you uh My just for me on a personal level this conversation has felt really nourishing and uh it's just been very easy to be present with you and yeah, I, I I think I've I've gained a lot just from being in your presence for this last almost hour. So I mean, really, thank you. You're most welcome, and uh, really blessings on your work. You're doing a great thing here. <laughs>